Today's September 30th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Paul Gold, who is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Hi. Um, his lab works on neurochemical and pharmacological enhancement of memory with a major effort directed at exploring age-related changes in brain function in both humans and rodents. Around the room, we've got a small group today. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Brian Derrick. Hi, guys. So, um, Paul, some of uh, your recent work describes ways that certain types of memory can be enhanced in aged animals. Um, before we talk about the specifics of that work, can you talk generally about what we can learn about memory systems from looking at memory loss? Uh, it's, a, uh, it's actually a, it's a very big question, um, and um, that is a lot of why I'm interested in uh, memory loss with aging, because I, th- I think there are clues in that um, that lead us back to how memories get formed in the first place. Um, the other way uh, people look at it, um, and aging is, doesn't solve this issue, is um, loss of function studies more generally, um, uh, brain lesion studies, for example, um, uh, but also pharmacological manipulations, pretty much treatment that takes anything away, um, uh, including drugs that take protein synthesis away, for example. So whenever you take something away, um, it's been an interesting uh, part. I'd, I'd like to hear what everybody thinks about this. Uh, an interesting um, aspect of neuroscience um, that um, taking something away is supposed to tell you about what the thing you took away does. And there's a logical fallacy in that um, that goes all the way back even to classic studies like HM. Um, because um, the, we look at HM, I'll use that as an example because almost everybody knows about HM. Uh, HM has temporal lobe removed, um, and particularly the hippocampus, So, uh, with, and had a, um, mem- a memory problem that is anterograde amnesia for the rest of his life. So with that then, it must be because the hippocampus is important for long-term memory. But really nobody studies the hippocampus, nobody studied his hippocampus. All they studied was what his brain could do without a hippocampus. And this is a, if you generalize from that to all lesion studies, whether they're anatomical lesion or drug lesion, as I said, um, what you really end up doing is attributing to the one part that's not working, the function, when what you study is the function of what is left and is working without that. And that doesn't, so if you um, take a rat, take out its hippocampus and find a deficit, oh, that's because the hippocampus is uh, important in that. Well, the hippocampus is the only thing that's in the the trash. You are explicitly not studying the hippocampus when you do that kind of experiment. Uh, Instead, you're studying what the rest of the brain can do without a hippocampus. And with all we know about reorganization of functions um, at all levels of analysis following brain damage, it strikes me as really odd that um, the field is so stuck on that as a model. And um, I'll say one more thing, and then I'll stop talking for a minute, and we can work our way back toward aging, where it is the same kind of issue. But um, I've talked to people who are cell molecular biologists in cancer research, and they do something very different. Um, They will block one of those now well-known signaling cascades. Um, uh, And in their case, it's important. Um, for cell proliferation. and they, um, But what they do is not so much look at what happens or attribute to the thing they blocked. 
the increase or decrease in proliferation, they look at how the network re- reorganizes itself and how that reorganized network acts. And then they use that to provide information about, well, if it works that way, then when it's all still intact, it must be doing something else. And that's a very different strategy than what we do in neuroscience, where we take out a brain area or we um, block an NMDA receptor um, or we um, uh, cause or we block protein synthesis. And we say, well, what's wrong is that you must need protein synthesis or NMDA receptors or the hippocampus for this. Well, sure, and I don't know what wouldn't be on that list if you think of need loosely, but what, is that, what does that actually tell you? And I, I don't think it tells you much. And the cancer biologists seem to be ahead of neuroscience, and it's, I think it's because that level of biology is more mature than neuroscience, but they're ahead of uh, the thinking, not just the methods. They're ahead of the thinking and what you do with that kind of data. So I'd like to, I don't know if you guys do lesions or not ever, but I'd like to know how you react to that. We're not admitting to it now. <laughs> That's for sure. I, okay. Uh, truth in advertising. I have done and still do lesion studies. So what you're objecting to is a sort of additive model of function. So if I say, um, if I'm going to remove the hippocampus and I'm going to see what's missing, the idea is that the hippocampus adds some component to behavioral function, and now I've just removed that. It's a little bit like taking a transistor radio, mm-hmm. pulling out a transistor, and now the voices don't come across anymore. And you say, well, that was the voice trans- transistor. Mm-hmm. It was responsible for the voice. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah. So t- to replace it, I mean, the, what what's required is a is some other model of how the different parts interact with each other. So I think the reason that some biochemists have an advantage is that they have are working with a system in which the model they have a good model for how biochemical signaling mm-hmm. pathways interact with each other. It doesn't have to be an additive model, mm-hmm. and to make us to make it easy for us to interpret lesion studies or pharmacological studies, we need a good model for how the thing that we're interfering with interacts with all the other things. We need a conceptual framework in which mm-hmm. to put that that isn't just the simplest additive function framework that you can think of. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's tough. There are not a lot of candidates. There's not a lot of people offering uh, an alternative. So the same thing in all kind of, especially in localization of function in the cortex, mm-hmm. where people just love to say what part of your cortex is responsible for your right. love of throwing the frisbee mm-hmm. and trying to mm-hmm. find it by imaging yeah. the cortex while you're yeah. throwing a frisbee. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it is the, the same kind of logic that leads to that. Um, and um, what you're describing has all the same issues, but now it's um, you're talking about uh, functional imaging of some sort, where you get to the same kinds of issues, uh, except in reverse. What does the activation mean? If you think about it in isolation from all the other brain areas. Uh, so um, you end up with the mother love place, and you end up with a trust place, and I forget the example you just used, um, but you end up with these places that are, uh, do something, and the do something doesn't really map against the data, um, uh, not in a, a pure sense at all. So um, why, I guess I'll ask, I'll ask some of the questions then. Um, why do you think neuroscience can't get past that? Because when I, actually in my um, neurobiology of memory course, I 
I, I say exactly that we are still locked in Gaul's phrenology. The only difference is that we go inside the skull instead of staying on the bumps. We keep the logic. And nobody questions that he was wrong. What they question and laugh at was that he used the wrong correlate. It was a biological correlate. It wasn't the right one. But nobody says, well, was the strategy right? Maybe that's not the right strategy. And that's the same strategy that we keep using over and over and over again. Um, and I don't know how neuroscience breaks past that. I, I, I don't have exactly the, an alternative strategy. That's what I was going to ask is that it, it, it is a tool. And not to beat a metaphor to death, but but even if there's a localization of functional latency, instead of a transistor radio, it's a computer, and you take out the video card, well, the video output is pretty much the only thing that's damaged. But there's no way for you to know that because the video output's gone, and that mm-hmm. you, there, there's no way to know, for you to know the computer's functioning just fine. Mm-hmm. It's just the output you can't see or hear, yeah. Yeah. and it's you know you would have no way to know that everything's pretty much intact. Well, well, of course, I, I, there is a way. I mean, if you're fixing your computer, you do know how to, right. to do that. Uh, it's, it's, the brain's a little harder, right? Uh, right. I, I exactly. Just, it is. That's um, the problem. But not, it, it, it is harder. Um, I just had the um, the other side of that coin happen where I had a computer problem and agonized over this. Um, it was the, um, the home computers, which were all on my home wireless network, and all of a sudden... All, all browsers. Uh, I tend to use Netscape the most, but I have Internet Explorer and I also have Chrome. And it didn't matter which browser I was using. Um, I would click on a link while I was on the Internet and it would flash up and then redirect. And I, it was driving me crazy because I couldn't go where I wanted to go. And I'd have to close down and try it again and found tricks to make it stop for a moment and so I could read the page I wanted to get to, but I couldn't get rid of it. And then it turned out that um, my son's computer and my wife's computer were starting to have Internet problems, too. They were all similar, but not quite the same, but but similar. So if you were um, looking at this as HM, um, we, were, we were replicating whatever this virus was. We were replicating the lesion in our systems. Uh, and it turned out that the lesion wasn't on any of the computers. The lesion was in the router. Now, uh, that uh, meant that, and once um, I kind of erased, I didn't know routers could do this. So once I erased the information in the router, started the whole thing over again, um, everything was fine. But that became one of the, taking the video card out was exactly the same kind of problem because um, fixing the router meant that I had to download drivers using an Internet system that wasn't working. And so it took me a long time to figure out how to do that. But uh, And that is, uh, as you say, Chandler, that's a much simpler instance of trying to replace function and and deal with work around, do the workarounds to see what can the rest of the system do and and, and identify the source of the problem. When we do this with, um, with brains, we don't find the router very often um, because we've already assigned the function to the brain area. So the computer is not working. It's the computer's fault. We hear the computer's not working, but it wasn't its fault. And we wouldn't know the difference, I don't think, in most um, brain studies. We, we, have no, we don't even have strategies for that. And um, some of it may be um, built into the, this, the thing that is special and I think makes neuroscience especially interesting um, uh, compared to uh, pure, more pure cell molecular biology. Um, uh, they don't cross as many levels of analysis in those questions as we do. And we don't even know what analysis uh, level of analysis is appropriate 
for any of the high-level questions we ask. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, I work on memory, and um, one can study memory at everything from a um, uh, molecular biology level all the way through, of course, the systems level. Which one's the right level to be at? And uh, nobody has an answer to that compared to the cancer researcher who um, b- believes probably correctly that the answer is someplace inside the cell molecular level of analysis. So you don't have to move out to a broader level the same way that we do. And maybe it's that we haven't figured out a real strategy to know which of the high-level constructs go with which levels of analysis. And we use them, We pretty much use all of the constructs for all the levels of analysis and haven't come up with a coherent theory yet about how they how they relate to each other, the levels of analysis, um, uh, of analysis, how those levels relate to each other um, any more than we have very good strategies for how cognitive levels of analysis relate to each other. We don't have that either. So um, uh, maybe that's the that kind of really maturity. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to depress you because that, I, I'm serious. That also is part of the uh, reason that I find neuroscience... Exciting. After doing it all these years, I'm old, I'm talking to the microphone. Um, after doing it all these years, the, uh, the excitement is that in some sense, it's not solvable. It's a problem. It's like getting a, I, I describe my career that way, you get a lifelong uh, crossword puzzle that's really hard, and you know that you can get to the end and not solve it. Um, uh, what I'd like to know, though, is that you get to the end and begin to have a sense of what the strategy would be to solve it. So it's, in that sense, not like a crossword puzzle where you can chunk it and do little bits. We're just um, understanding what questions are important and how to pose them is mm-hmm. even is even a big part of the challenge. Of. And a lot of it is whether you do um, research to ask more questions or whether you actually try to get answers. And I think answering asking more questions is really the way to go. And I understand the other point of view, but I think that really you do research to ask more questions, which I guess would be a segue into the alternative way of thinking, which is the approaching grants, where you write grants to answer questions, where the reality is, at least for some of us, um, you write grants in order to get to the right questions. And you can't write a grant that says that, uh, not if you want to fund it. Um, um, they don't want more questions at the other end. They want the answers. And uh, it's a, it is not necessarily the only strategy for science. It's just the only one that can get funded. I will. I think it also gives us direction in terms of you're talking about a multiplicity of levels mm-hmm. and how difficult it is to go from one to the other. <clears throat> and I think one way that is a, the right way to do that, and, and well, there are, it's because we know that there are wrong ways to do that. And this is just sort of, I guess, to some degree, my opinion. But it's important that the levels have a referent relationship to each other. So if you think of um, the gene, you can understand uh, how the gene works by understanding its its three-dimensional structure and understanding the bonds between the chemicals and the biochemistry. So each description of the gene from molecular biology down to biochemistry down to inorganic chemistry and, and attraction mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the atoms all makes sense within all of these levels. So there's a referent relationship mm-hmm. between the levels. Mm-hmm. But very often you can ask questions at a level where below it it doesn't, coincide at all with what's going on, or it even ignores it. For example, cognitive psychology, in, in the day when cognitive psychology was just becoming hot, it really didn't matter to them if their models had any 
referent relationship to the physiology, mm-hmm. as long as their model describes the behavior, yeah. that is sufficient. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a functionalist trap. Is, is, are these models going to give any insight into the underlying physiology? And if mm-hmm. they don't, what is their utility? And to a cognitive psychologist, it's in itself. It's, right. No, exactly. But um, for neuroscientists who care about behavior, then it's no longer into itself. So the neuroscientists come along and take the elements of the cognitive model and look for it in the brain at some level of analysis. And uh, they do that even though someplace um, everyone knows from cognitive psychology down to neuroscience that um, unless cognitive psychology has actually finished its job, those um, those um, constructs, those models are not right. Um, because if they were right, then there wouldn't be another one coming along five years from now. So then you're doing, you're looking for the physiological basis for something that is itself ephemeral. It's going to disappear on you. So you pick um, the cognitive psychology of today, pick one of the boxes, and you go to look for it. And by the time you might find a physiology that m- relates to it, it's not the right yet anymore. It's already changed and morphed into a different. Uh, kind of box, a different organizational scheme within cognitive psychology, as it should, because cognitive, within its own level, the field ought to evolve into better and better models. But once, it, if it's, if that's changing, then the goal posts are moving constantly. If you're working at a biological level to try to map up against that cognitive psychology, you can't ever get there because by the time you get there, it's gone. Uh, so that's the theorists complain about about all experiment all experiments. Mm-hmm. So the theorist says, okay, these are the phenomena I'm supposed to explain in my theory, and uh, these like these are the ion channels that are in the cell. This is the phenomenon in the cell that I'm supposed to explain with these ion channels. Now I should start working on the theory. Work on the theory for a short time, and they show it to somebody. I'm not speaking for myself, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I know that this happens to <laughs> other people. Then they show it to somebody, and the other person says, oh, well that ion channel turned out wasn't really in the cell. And there's this other one, and this phenomenon was all an artifact. And this new phenomenon is what you should explain. Yeah. It's uh, because all of scientific results are ephemeral in that mm-hmm. sense uh, that they... That's right. They're just a snapshot of what people think at the moment. So, uh, so the connection, making connections across levels requires... Uh, somebody to know something that's going to stick around for a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's and nobody at any level really is, I, I think is doing all, it. I think all of the levels are changing so fast right now that the mapping is maybe impossible, but at least very difficult. So, um, Brian, you were mentioning the gene level, and if you ask a biologist what a gene was 20 years ago, it's a very different answer than if you ask... Now, now it's a construct. Back then, it was a thing, and now it itself has become a construct. Um, uh, in terms of uh, even at that, even at a molecular level, um, uh, gene expression studies, of course, are very common now in neuroscience. So, and proteomics um, is becoming more common. And one of the shocks has been that the gene expression data don't map against the proteins. So knowing which genes get turned on and off doesn't tell you which proteins are being produced or not because there's another level of regulation in between those. Um, and uh, that means then that you, when you get to the, the mediator of gene expression, you don't know that by looking at the gene level. 
So you don't even get up to the protein level cleanly, uh, let alone getting from that to the kinds of cell functions and brain functions that we might care about. Wow, we need some good news here. Okay. So, so what, <laughs> what's, what's tractable? What, how, how, what's your approach in this sea of seemingly... Um, you know, fruitless endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's. Um, I don't at think it's uh, at, at all um, fruitless. I think that um, some of the uh, changes that have come along in the time that I've been doing this, I think, are really um, important. Um, so even though we have denigrated uh, loss of function studies, the reality is that they were studies that stood on their own for a very long time, and now. They don't. Uh, people expect to see multiple pronged approaches to talking about the function of any brain area or any neurotransmitter or any gene. Uh, they don't. They no longer. It's no longer enough to do to lesion the brain area or to have a gene knockout and say that did whatever is lost. Um, and I think that's a that's a huge step forward. Um, uh, and it, it is a challenge, I think, to the field to try to think of all the ways in which the reorganization may lead to the uh, lo- the loss of function uh, that stems from that. Uh, so that, I think, has been a, a really positive development. Um, I'm editor of Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, and I've actually gotten to watch within the journal how the compare the articles that would get into the journal 10 years ago and now actually don't get into the journal, uh, and how the, the submissions they do have changed. And they're not just, I thought for a while it was easily characterized as multi-experiment versus single experiment. That's not exactly right. It was actually multi-method um, that is the key. It could be one experiment, but have lots of different measures at once. And the idea is that even, I think the underlying idea is that even if your measure isn't right, there's an attempt to measure something uh, so that you can see how the system is functioning as well as as well as seeing how it dysfunctions. Um, and so I think that's a, a big step. Um, uh, a step that I would like to see more, I suppose, is to, and this um, gets kind of to the extreme phrenology and then get lost, because I work in memory research, the idea that there are, um, that associative learning gets right down to associative synapses, I think holds things back, because there is no logical reason that that has to be. And uh, it, it requires that, in, in memory, that um, animals learn to put together something like stimulus and a response uh, in this, this really simplest case. And um, the reality is that we've known, actually all the way back to Pavlov, that that isn't what animals learn. They learn something much more complex than that, and the changes are more distributed both in form and content around the, uh, around the brain. So that, um, uh, uh, and this goes, uh, these are not new thoughts. I'm actually thinking about saying um, uh, something that uh, comes directly out of William James, that um, uh, no two individuals can have the same experience. And if you think about what that means for learning and memory, um, this is the bad news, the really good news. Um, it means that if you can't ever have the same experience, then you can never. Then if you believe in this simple association mechanism, you can never replicate the result because it won't be the same in any two individuals. So you can never repeat your own science, and of course we need replication, or we don't believe anything. Um, so, um, so that's a problem, and it gets worse because even within an individual, you can't have the same experience twice. 
you, know, you can't go home again. You can't have the same experience twice. So if you measure something now with an experience and then you have the same experience, you think, present the same, same cues and all that later on, the brain response is going to be different. So you can't have the, you can't replicate it over time within an individual. You can't replicate it across individuals. So what are you going to do? And then the positive part to this is that in terms of reorganizing brains, uh, however we mean that, to um, to incorporate new information, that process is probably the same in two different individuals and in the same individual at different times. So if we get past looking for the thing and looking for the process then I think that we would be uh, farther ahead. And that part, I, I guess, um, in some sense, do try to incorporate into my uh, thinking and into the experiments that I do because um, I don't try to localize the memory. I try to manipulate the process. Uh, so in looking at the aging work that was my presentation today, um, I use the dysfunction as a way to learn about the process of memory, not what do, I don't care what the animals learn individually. I don't think that's knowable. But I do care about what the process is, and I, I take as an assumption that it's the same in process that would be in young and old animals, even though the old animals have a deficit. The process isn't working. Can I turn the process on? And from the work I show, there are ways to do that, and that tells me about the process. So the process level is where I think um, the, the answers lie and get a bit away from that kind of um, use of Franz Gall to answer contemporary neuroscience questions. So, so that segues nicely into actually talking about some of those results. Um, at my seminar earlier today, I talked about um, rapid forgetting as a characteristic of uh, aging, uh, age-related changes in memory, uh, most of it in studying uh, rodents that get old and um, show rapid forgetting similar to what elderly humans would show, and then uh, showed ways to reverse that uh, in an acute sense by giving uh, drugs like glucose as my one of my primary drugs uh, to enhance memory, and in fact we in, we reverse eliminate, as far as I can tell, the effects of aging on memory by administration of glucose either systemically or into specific brain areas. And then the rest of the uh, talk was about possible mechanisms by which that might happen, but one of them being that um, the primary locus is the first most upstream locus of uh, that's responsible for the memory loss may actually be outside the brain, maybe in the liver, where um, hormones that ought to release glucose from the liver to act on the brain don't do so. And if you reverse that pro that problem, then the animals have memory, old animals have memory that's as good as that of young animals. I think that's enough to yeah. catch everybody up. I, could, I can't believe I spent an hour <laughs> saying what I just said in two minutes. <laughs> so the, the, one question, so I, I always have uh, issues with the with terminology. So c can you differentiate uh, the terms memory formation, consolidation, um, retrieval, reconsolidation, and memory modulation in the context of what you're looking at mm -hmm. as far as aging. It, is that a, are you looking at effects of 
of consolidation, of retrieval? I mean, it just so, just to parse out some of what yeah. the question is there. Um, okay, well, we have to back up. Um, That's another huge been, question. Yes, Sorry. It's not been, so, and 35 years ago, we went um, with Jim McCall, actually, who is certainly well-known for his memory consolidation work. We published a, a chapter together, um, a new theory um, that... Uh, was on memory modulation. And the reason for it was uh, because there was no longer any reason to think about or do memory consolidation studies of the sort going on back then. And that reason was that the goal of memory consolidation work, thinking back 35 years, was to find the time constant for the formation of memory. And that time constant was um, intended to be very important because that would constrain any of the biology that we didn't have, but that would come. So if it takes um, five seconds to make a memory, you look at one kind of biology. If it takes six hours to make a memory, you look at another kind of biology. And as I said, we didn't have the biologies, but whatever they were, they were going to fit that. And so there were big arguments about how long it took to make a memory. And one of the things that we... Uh, uh, and I um, identified around that time was that you could get retrograde amnesia gradients and metro- retrograde enhancement gradients that would be anything from seconds to hours long by varying things like dose and intensity of the treatment. Now, the memory process probably wasn't... Well, you couldn't imagine how that would change. There's a memory process or a set, but they had a time constant in the way of thinking, and yet we could get effects that would go back in time for just a short time or back in time for a very long time. So what that told us was that the effects that we were looking at really, or the effectiveness, was the results were really demonstrating the effectiveness of the treatments, not anything about the memory directly. Good treatments in this sense, effect, most effective treatments would go back the farthest in time. Less effective treatments in this sense would only go back short periods of time, but it meant that that time constant didn't exist. It couldn't exist because we could generate a family of curves even within a single treatment just by changing intensity or dose. If that's true, and back then pretty much the only thing we knew about memory was that it was time-dependent in um, terms of being susceptible to change with um, treatments that would come right after, shortly after training. So that was the main bit of data we had about memory back then. And if that was, so that was the data set, it no longer was the case that the data set was going to tell us what the time constant was. That's why we had memory consolidation. So why would brains be set up so that they were susceptible for change after the event? And that was directly what led to look to us looking at hormonal effects on learning and memory, because we turned it all around and said, "Well, what is the biological purpose of having susceptibility to of memories to um, have better, stronger, and weaker memories um, normally?" And that would be something like arousal, emotion, and we began to think about manipulating arousal, and we couldn't find any two people who agreed on how to do that. So we went straight to the hormones and looked at. And the first study I did of this sort in his lab, in Jim McCaw's lab, we looked at 30, maybe 32 hormones to see which ones had an effect on memory, thinking maybe none of them. And uh, we ended up with a small set of two or three, and epinephrine was the most potent of those. So it's been epinephrine ever since, in that sense. And the idea is that you have an experience, and most experiences after the fact become... um, uh, important or not, based on this physiological response, but the event's already over. So um, you have an accident. You didn't expect to have the accident. The adrenaline would go up, 
after the accident, something like that, or you see an accident. So the adrenaline's after the fact, and it retroactively enhances memory. That became memory modulation and is the real... Um, uh, is still the concept I work on. Now I get because uh, in public speaking, including my talk, I probably said consolidation because people know what that is. They have an idea of what it is, but it's something I don't believe in. In fact, in the way that it was originally intended. So um, I don't think that those time courses are telling us about how long it takes to make memories. Um, instead, they're um, telling us how good our treatments are. Um, but it is the case that you can improve memory or, or impair memory with treatments, including endogenous treatments, hormone release, neurotransmitter release, that can affect the process of memory. So that's not really consolidation anymore. It's a, it's a different issue. The memory is in, and in my mind it can be consolidated immediately or not, but the issue is these hormones playing on it so that it is made more robust or not. Um, so they, they orchestrate the the robustness of the memory, as opposed to the classic sense of thinking about consolidation. And um, that has, uh, so that's the modulation part. So you get from consolidation to modulation. Now, if I don't believe in consolidation, I've had this discussion with people who work on reconsolidation. Uh, in fact, one of them came up in a challenging way at a neuroscience meeting. I love the moment. Uh, came up and uh, uh, said, why don't you guys, I, re I was representative of all people, I guess, to do memory consolidation work outside of the, that reconsolidation camp. Why don't you guys believe in reconsolidation? And I said, well, I can't because I don't believe in consolidation. So how would I ever accept reconsolidation? That wasn't the answer he expected, and so he just walked away grumbling because I didn't deal with his issue. In fact, I think reconsolidation is not a... Um, uh, my own view is that reconsolidation is a non-issue, both because I don't think it's a very reliable effect, and the literature would say so, um, but it's, there's not time to go through all that. But also because it's not even... It is interesting only in a very specific sense, and that is, it's William James again, and that's that memories are not done when they're done. They are constantly changing, and your memory always, memories are always incorporating new information. That new information could be new information of the sort of um, reactivation of an old memory, and you impose um, a treatment like a protein synthesis inhibitor on it. Now you've got this non-information coming, and I think of treatments doing this, bringing information in, it's just noise information. Putting the noise on top of the thing you were just thinking about, now you've got noisy information, and it's changed. Or, and this happens too with reconsolidation, the second experience changes, it's, you can show it, changing the memory for the first experience, because the second experience often mirrors what the first one was. And you can, if you just look at the test in many of the, many of the reconsolidation studies, the second experience leads to better memory for the first one. The reconsolidation amnesia is a deficit relative to what becomes two trials. It doesn't go down below the first one. So that's not reconsolidation. That's consolidation, if you use those terms, of a second memory. And I think the field really as the reconsolidation notion, it's the wrong term, and if and the way in which I think it is important isn't reconsolidation at all. It's a very interesting um, psychological phenomenon that needs a biological basis, I think, and that's how memories get reorganized on the basis of new information coming in. That's what I think it's all about. So that's kind of how I sort those out. Um, see, the other one you mentioned was retrieval, and there are two ways to think about retrieval. One is 
uh, and that's the way I usually stick to it. I do it operationally, that retrieval is what you measure when you test animals' memory. Um, but there is another uh, form of that, and some of the deep learning theorists do talk about retrieval mechanisms being set up at the time of memory formation. And I have trouble semantically separating that out from memory formation because I don't know what, I, I personally, I've never understood exactly what that means because memory formation has no meaning as a memory unless you can also access find a way it. to pull it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, access is the perfect word. So retrieval in that sense, I meld right back into consolidation when I use that So word. I guess the bottom line is the terminology is not important. What you're looking at is the actual effect of being able to measure access, which is That's right. not and really for a while, uh, And I think terminology ends up being important, and for a while it was very important to me. I would not say the word consolidation in the context of my work or anyone else's work because I just thought it was a dirty word. It didn't exist, and I was sure of it. Uh, now I've, I've lightened up, uh, I guess, with um, maturity, and I'll say consolidation, but um, uh, I really think of it as modulation even as I'm saying it. But... Um, yeah. Uh, you have to use the words that everybody else uses in order to communicate. So I use it in that sense. But so thanks, everybody. Thank you, Paul. Neuroscientist talk chop. Yep, I'm, I'm Charlie looking did forward it. to hearing this. <laughs>